0: Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Vandalia, Michigan campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. So it's good to be with you and to talk this morning about one of my favorite subjects. Actually two of them, repentance and grace. And my guess is that most people don't typically tie those two things together. That's what I want to try to do this morning. But I want to start, I want you to help me because we're going to look at seven scriptures this morning. We're going to read them together. They're all short. We're going to read them together. And as we read them, I want you to look for the common theme or themes in them. Okay? And uh, we'll talk a little bit about the context This first one was right at the very beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. Okay, in Matthew 3, 1 to 2. Read with me if you would. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The second one was right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right after his his baptism and time of temptation in the wilderness. So read with me from Mark 1. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Then, We'll come to Peter's first message after the birthday of the church at, on the day of Pentecost. We're going to actually look at his first two messages in Acts 2. We have the first one in Acts 3. We have the second one. So read with me from Acts 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the next chapter, his second message, very shortly thereafter, Acts three nineteen to 21. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Then just to show you that what they said in their early messages they also said in their late messages because this next passage is from 2 Peter which is right toward the very end of Peter's life. So what was he preaching there? Let's read it together, 2 Peter 3. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, With the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then we finally, we have two, of Paul's messages where he summarized the message that he spoke from beginning to end. The first one, Acts 20, 20 and 21. Read with me. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Then in Acts 26, when he was before King Agrippa, he, he said this, read with me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, And then to the Gentiles, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Okay, now here we have the first messages of John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, and Paul. So, I have three questions for you. Number one, what theme or themes are common to all of those scriptures? Repentance. 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 What does that mean? Oh, let me go back a minute. I think there's one other thing that, that catches my attention in addition to the word repentance. And it's the word that comes immediately after Repentance and mo- or repent in most of them. That's that's one of the the things. Is the word and in five of the seven? It's repent and. In other words, the repentance is not an end in itself. It's going to lead to something else. Okay. We'll look more about that in a minute. But now, let me ask this second question. What is repentance? What does it mean to repent? There you go. Was that Shanna? Who was that? She's heard me, she's heard me talk about this before, many times. Change the way you think. The word is metanoia. Change your mind. Okay? Pardon? Complete change. Okay. Now I have the third question. Why do you suppose that word is mostly left out of the gospel that's proclaimed today? Because I've read entire booklets written to present the gospel that never contained the word repentance or the idea. Of repentance, and yet John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, and Paul—it's where they started. So why why has that happened? Is that a legitimate question? Maybe we, don't, maybe we don't understand it. Maybe we don't understand it. A lot of people think of repentance as just confession. Those are two. Those are actually two different things. Okay. So we don't we don't understand it. I also think that it's a part a part of that is the, is the result of some funny ideas that we have today about grace. And that's really where I kind of want to focus in today. Now, I'm excited to be part of this this year of grace and truth here. Because for 25 years, I have felt that one of the devil's greatest tactics against believers is to get them to believe that they have to come down on one side or the other. Hmm. And so you have grace people and you have truth people. For a long time, I was a truth person. I'm still a truth person. But I understand something. I've read John 1, I think it's 17, where John writes, For the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is grace and truth. And if the devil can get you to separate that, I had one person tell me, God told me to err on the side of grace. And I had a little bit of a problem with that. I don't think, if God wanted to talk to me, I don't think he would tell me how to err. (laughs) I think he would give me some help in how to keep the two together. Okay? We have grace and truth, people. Now I want to tell you something, just as I worked on this message this week, God began to convict me of something, and it's this, that the failure of the church to hold those two things together has resulted to some degree in what we see in our culture today, because politically we're polarized. We have left and right, we have grace and truth both very distorted. And the Lord was just convicting me this week that this is a great time to be talking about grace and truth because what this world needs are peacemakers who can bring people to the intersection of grace and truth in the person of Jesus. We need peacemakers, not polarizers. That's a call that God has on the church to rise up in this day and demonstrate grace and truth and how those meet in the person of Jesus and and get us away from this this morass that we are in because we're polarized and and it's rooted in the church's failure to keep grace and truth together. Does that make sense to you? So I'm excited about being part of grace and truth this entire year. You heard, if you were here last Sunday, you heard Pastor Cameron say that we're going to be talking about these two things all year. And this first month is on grace defined. And so I'm going to give you some definitions of grace this morning. You'll hear some more because there's more than one way to define it. But I wanna talk about repentance as the key to appropriating the grace that is yours. Okay, that's where we're going this morning. And I wanna give you three definitions. I'm trying to remember the guy's name where I got these. They're not original with me. He was a pastor in Milwaukee years ago, but I can't remember his name. Grace, or mercy, grace, and judgment. Mercy is God shields us from what we deserve. And I like to visualize that as his hand of mercy over me, shielding me from what I deserve. How many of you are grateful that God has shielded you from what you deserve? Okay. Second, in grace, God extends his hand and gives us what we don't deserve way beyond what we have deserved. That's grace. Mercy and grace are, sometimes they're a little hard to define between them. They look very much the same in a lot of ways. But mercy is simply God spares us what we deserve, and grace is he gives us what we don't deserve. And then the third one is judgment, where occasionally he lifts that hand of mercy, and allows us to experience some of what we deserve. He gives us over to the twisted desires of our heart to expose them, not to shame us, but so they can be healed. How can something, how, if, if you have a blind spot in your life, how can you be healed from it if God doesn't reveal it to you? Right. So when He reveals something to you, the purpose is not to shame you, it's to, so that you can open that part of your life to the power of God and his grace to change you. Mercy, grace, and judgment. Now, how many of you are parents? How many of you understand that all three of those are necessary in raising children? Okay, and God is the best parent, so he knows how to use all three of them. There are times where I extended mercy to my children. There are times where I extended grace to them. And there were times where I brought a little judgment to bear on the situation because I wanted them to learn something. Isn't it true that if they never see any kind of judgment, how will they learn what's right and what's wrong and what leads to life and what doesn't? Okay, now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian back at the time of World War II. And uh, this, this is taken from a book of his that I dearly love called, uh, oh goodness, I left, lost the title just like that. The Cost of Discipleship. I've been trying to figure out if those are brain freezes or senior moments or some combination thereof. <laughs> cost of discipleship. He talks about cheap grace and costly grace. Costly grace is the unmerited favor of God purchased through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus that empowers us to live the life to the full that Jesus came to provide. That's costly grace. It's costly grace because it costs Jesus his life. Cheap grace is permission to stay stuck in our sin, because sin has been forgiven and doesn't matter anymore. Today we call that hyper grace, and believe me, that idea is alive and well in the church around the world today. Don't worry, don't worry about sin; it's covered. Luke and I were talking about the the years that we spent together with a, a little small group we had before we merged into New Day. We called it the Life Community. And there was one lady who came there for a time, and every time I would use the, the, the word sin, she would just go bananas. It's like, why are you talking about that? I talk about it because it's real. Have you taken a look at your life recently? Okay? but. She had, been, she had been so indoctrinated with, with what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace or what we today call hyper grace that it's like what it means is it doesn't matter. And, and it's tragic because if it doesn't matter, then you stay in it and you miss what God has for you. Bonhoeffer said, cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, on the other hand, is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price for which the merchant will sell all of his goods to buy. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. That's costly grace. Now, I want to talk about two words today. Access to grace and appropriating grace. Access to grace, look at Romans 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We have access to grace because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, what does it mean to have access? It means permission, liberty, or the ability to enter into. We can enter into the grace of God because of what Jesus has done for us. Appropriate means to set apart for or assign to a particular purpose Or use an exclusion of all others. Now to illustrate the difference, I want to use my bank account. Now all analogies break down at one point or another. And where this one breaks down is that God's grace is infinite. And my bank account is a long way from that. Okay? But I'll use it to illustrate these two definitions. I have an account at the Intera Credit Union in Elkhart County Indiana where I live and I have a couple accounts there and I have money that I have deposited into that account and so it's we own that I own that but it's in the possession of Intera, and as long as it's there they can use it to make money for themselves Okay, but I have access to it I can go online I can go Take, stick my debit card in the ATM machine, I can write a check, I can authorize an automatic transfer, and when I do that, that money transfers that I had access to, I transfer to something that I want to use it for. I appropriate it for something. Okay, Like once a month, and Tara automatically sends my tithe check to New Day Community Church. Okay. When I need cash, I go by the bank machine, I stick my debit card in, I get some cash, and I have that, which I can take it to McDonald's or, or wherever I go and, and use it. Okay. That's the difference between access and appropriation. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Now, we have access, full access to the grace of God. But notice this verse from Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now, idols begin in the mind. This is the connection. To repentance. Remember, repentance is a change of mind. Okay? We have to change our way of thinking because if we don't, if we just think like the world change, thinks, even though we have access to it because to the grace of God, because of what Jesus has done for us, we will forfeit the benefit of that and, and the ability to appropriate it into some situation that we need to see the grace of God in. Does that make sense to you? So it's, we have access to it, but if we have idols in our lives based on wrong thinking, that's where they start, we will forfeit the benefit of that grace. Now, I want to talk to you this morning about my journey of repentance. That started in January 2, 1994. Now, you count the years, that's 25 years, okay? So this, is, this has been a journey of, of mine for 25 years. And it started... January 2nd, 1994, which was the first Sunday of 1994. And my usual pattern, I was up at 4 o'clock on Sunday morning. I have my first cup of coffee. I'm walking the floor and praying. And then I sit down at my computer, and out comes my sermon. Now I've been, pastors told me it would drive them crazy to do it that way, but that's just the way it works for me. I've been thinking about it, and... All week long and it's stirring around and then it comes together so January 2, 1994 I'm walking the floor praying with my first cup of coffee and I heard the Lord speak to me I've never heard an audible voice I don't know how to describe it to you other than I know it was God and I know what he said and to this day it was the clearest word I've ever had and this is what he said you've been praying for a revival but you need to understand something. The ministry of John the Baptist preceded my ministry. The baptism of repentance preceded the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and a season of repentance must precede a season of revival. And I went to church and I said this is what I heard this morning, and I've been preaching repentance ever since. And some people got tired to get tired of listening. Well, if John started with it, and Jesus started with it, and Peter started with it, and Paul started with it, then I think I'm in good company if I keep preaching it, okay? Now, that was January 2nd, 1994. I want to give you my definition that has come out of the experiences of the next two years after that. Uh, We already read this scripture, we'll read it again. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preach that they should repent and turn. Repent and. And believe the gospel. And have faith in Christ. All of those ands. I preach that they should repent and turn to God, and prove their repentance by their deeds. In other words, if you have a change of thinking, it will lead to a change of what you do. Now Hebrews understood that because their word for repentance is just turn because in the concrete language of of the Hebrews, the idea of changing your mind and not going a different direction didn't make any sense. It's why there's no word in Hebrew for faith. There's only a word for faithfulness. So how do you know if somebody has faith? It's because they're faithful. So it made perfect sense To Paul said, change your mind and prove that you've changed your mind by what you do. Now you see, in our culture we have, we have separated those two out. 25 years of stuff rolling around in my head, so I have to be careful and stay with my notes, or we won't get through this today. Okay. So here's my definition of repentance repentance or metanoia is a change of mind that results in a twofold change in direction or turn. Now, before I go to the next line, I want to ask a question. This was January 2nd, 1994. Anybody in this room remember what happened 18 days after that? January 20, 1994. Anybody? I'm the only person in the room who knows. Actually, it's a part of our history. Our new day history. Oh, right. it was the, the Toronto, so. That was the beginning of the revival in Toronto. Yeah. Now I didn't get there in '94. I was there four times in '95, '96, and if you were ever there at the heart of that revival, and it's still what you hear when you're around John Arnott is turning to the heart of the father it's rediscovering the heart of the father that's what it was all about and it was that move out of that movement that partners in harvest which New Day is a part of has come from so this is a part of our history and to me that it was very significant that that happened 18 days after I heard that word then The second turning is away from sin, because the next move of God after that January 20, 1994 in Toronto was Father's Day, isn't that appropriate? 1995 in Brownsville, the Brownsville church down in Pensacola, Florida. And if you were there or watched any of that on TV, that was all about turning away from sin. Now to me, it's hugely significant that those two things happened in that order. Because repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in direction toward God and from sin. And it's important in that order because the truth is, apart from the empowering grace of God... You can't turn away from your sin. You just keep being stuck in it. I know a lot of people who have things in their life they don't like and they keep trying to change it. But the only way they're going to change it is to turn their heart to the Father and let the Father's way of thinking begin to be my way of thinking. We sang about that this morning. He's for us, not against us. Now, why do we need to change our minds and think differently? Well, start with, because our thoughts are not God's thoughts. Read this one with me, if you can. I don't know if you're in the back, if you can see those letters, but... For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God doesn't think like us. Imagine that. And when I have a disagreement with God, guess who's right? This is why we need to change our thinking to line up with God's thinking. Then Romans twelve two, in the message. Let's read this one together. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what it wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well formed maturity in you. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking and You begin to think the same thoughts Everybody else is thinking And you just follow right down the same ruts and Paul said when you do that it's gonna drag you down to that level It's not gonna bring maturity out of you. Don't just fit into the culture's way of thinking think different thoughts Think the thoughts of God. Let those begin to direct your ways. And then Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Read that with me. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. When your mind is free to wonder, where does it go? Somebody told me a long time ago, pay attention to that because it'll tell you a lot about you. When your mind is free to wonder, where does it go? Does your, when your mind is free to wonder on anything, does it wonder to things that are noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy? That your, anytime your mind is free, that's where it goes. How many, of, for how many of you is that true? I think I just did. (laughs) Where 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 do our minds go? In a ditch. An idle mind is the devil's. devil's, My mom used to say the devil's workshop. Same deal. An idle mind is the devil's workshop. Well, because of the way we think. Because we haven't been trained in repentance into thinking differently. Because it's like what, you know, for, for so many people today, it's like, why would you talk about repentance? Jesus has already died for our sins and so we don't need to worry about that. He has died for our sins, but I don't want to be imp- continue to be imprisoned by my, way, my old way of thinking. So, let me just give you some examples, a few examples, of thinking differently. And and the first one is actually what we already sang about this morning. God loves me and is for me, not against me. Why is it important to think that? Because when we mess up, we, we will run to Him if we believe. Right. God was lover and promise giver 430 years before he became lawgiver and judge. That's Galatians 3, 17 and 18. See that context, Paul was accused by the Jews of not appreciating the law. He said, I appreciate the law, but you need, I, you need to understand something. 430 years before God gave the law to Moses, he came to Abraham with a promise a loving promise, I'm going to bless you and you will be a blessing and through you all the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world will be blessed, that's Genesis 12one to 3, you ought to know those three verses, those are three of the most important verses in the Bible, it's what God's up to, now why is that important? Because if you see God primarily as the lawgiver and judge, let me ask you a question. If you have a deputy come to your front door and ring your doorbell and hand you a summons to appear in court, what begins to go through your mind? Are you excited? Wow, what an opportunity. How how many of you would would that be true for? For how many of you would your heart rate begin to, to accelerate? And all kinds of thoughts would start going through your mind. See, because we don't get excited about appearing before a judge. Now, Jesus, God is the lawgiver and the judge. But it's not who he is primarily. It's not his identity. He does say God is love. That's an identity statement. He never says God is law. He gave the law for a reason, a valid reason, but it's not who he is. Do you understand what I'm saying? These are ways we be, need to begin to think differently or we will never draw we will never turn toward God and begin to enjoy God because we're afraid of the judgment that's coming or something. This third one's one of my pet peeves. <laughs> Comes out of my conversations with a friend who's always using this term, we're just dirty, rotten sinners. And I got to where he leads a Bible study Every time I'd hear that, I'd just raise my hand. Sorry, that's not my identity. Paul wrote to the saints. I'm, that's, that's who I am. I'm part of the saints. I'm a disciple of Jesus, declared holy by the grace of God. That's who I am. Am I perfect? No. No. You ask my wife, she can tell you that. But my identity is not dirty, rotten center. see? And, the, the, you know, it's kind of became a ga- become a game, but it's not really a game, because if that's your identity, you have a tendency to just kind of excuse staying where you are. Mm-hmm. It's like the people who say to me, well, I'm just human. And I say, no, you're not. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're not just human. You are indeed human. But you have the Spirit of the living God who spoke this world into existence and who sustains it every second of every day living inside of you. You have a whole lot more possibilities then, oh, I'm just human. You understand what I'm saying? It's the same kind of idea. We just end up excusing. I don't want to excuse my sin. I want God to reveal my sin. I want Him to reveal what I need to do. And you know what? If you ask Him, He'll tell you. I was praying at the end of the year, I always reflect on the past year and the coming year, and I was praying, God, Uh, help me stay focused on the mission that you've called me to. And I think it was maybe New Year's Eve, somewhere in there, I heard the Lord say, you don't really need my help to stay focused on the mission. You're a task-oriented person. You do that very well. What you need help in is relating to me as a person. I'm glad I heard that because that's, you know, it's like, okay, God, that's what I want to focus on. Now, I know he's a person, but you, un- you understand what I'm saying? It's sometimes it's, it's, we can, we don't know how to have a personal relationship. We know we have one, but what does that really mean? And how do we cultivate that? I know how to cultivate my relationship with my wife or with my close friends, but how do I cultivate that relationship? And so the Lord said, that's what you really need help on. If you want help, ask for that. You can take care, you can stay focused on the mission. You're a task-oriented person. You know how to go after things. Okay, conclusion. Wow, I'm right on time, too. These words are in red. What's that mean? Jesus. The words of Jesus. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus has paid the price of our sin and given us access to God's grace. Repentance, changing your thinking, appropriates it into your life on a daily basis. So we live in an attitude of repentance. Repentance is not some, something you do when you come first to Jesus and then it's all done and over it's, it's a continuing process of God. See, that Romans 12 passage that we read in the message in most translations says something like that. Be changed by the... Re, be trans, don't conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's an ongoing process. And don't cling to worthless idols. That's old ideas and thoughts. Because if you do, you forfeit the grace that could be yours.